Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Lamentations 1, starting with verse 12 through 22. And basically, the last time was the intro to Lamentations. And whenever we do a new book in this church, you know, there's a problem today in quasi-Christianity in the fact that these anybody can start up a ministry. They don't necessarily need training. They just need a little charisma and some support. They can get on TV. They can do a lot of things. And there's a lot of places that are taking the Bible out of context. The way we, and you can make the Bible say anything you want if you play Bible bingo and start picking out scriptures, right? The way we combat that is in this church is on Sunday mornings, we go through books, right? We go from chapter one to the last chapter. We covered Romans. Now we're in Lamentations and we go through the whole book. So there is nothing taken out of context. Very, very important. Lamentations is a book that's a little tough to digest. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah, the prophet wrote it. And there's a lot of different things we can learn as well. This morning, the message is titled, Choose the Faithful One. This is really important because, and it's kind of funny because I can't fit long titles on the CDs. (laughs) So I have to try to be as pithy as possible. And what it means is that there was a time in history with the children of Israel, the Israelites, right? That they started seeing some of the things that their pagan neighbors had. You know, it's just a sin nature. You know, you, you have something, God's blessed you, you with something, and you, you got to look over there. Well, somebody has this that I don't have. Somebody has that that I don't have. Um, or you think you don't have it, and when you get it, it could destroy you. So thank God for not unanswered prayers, I often say that. So the children of Israel became uh, the, the culture of believers, and they started straying from God. Not my words, it's just the prophets that, that spoke to us over the, the uh, centuries in the Old Testament. And what they did was they started to, and, the, and God would call it spiritual, think about this, not physical, spiritual adultery. So what they would do is, you know, God wanted to be a, a, a faithful spouse to his people. Even in the New Testament in Ephesians 5, we see the relationship of Jesus to Christians. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride collectively. Again, it's a spiritual relationship. So we're going to cover a portion of scripture in the Old Testament where the believers started going after the things of the world. They started leaving their God, and they started to uh, choose the world, the world system, as an unfaithful lover. And we see this, very interestingly enough, in the prophet Hosea with Gomer. Gomer, was a, she actually committed adultery, but there was a, an object lesson in what she was doing to the children of Israel and God's people. So there's so many different ways that God can teach us. He can't force us. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He's God, but he did give us free will. So we can go our own way, but he's got all these stop gaps, these speed bumps. He, he tries to get our attention. Unfortunately, we're in a portion of scripture where they went so far, this body of believers, not all of them, you can't ever paint anybody in, in a monolithic stroke, And he's, you know, Jeremiah is ministering, so to speak, literally in the ashes. We're going to look at this in three parts. Just a quick recap. I'm just going to do it one more time. And then the next several chapters, the next several weeks, we're just going to go into it and start moving quickly. But 
Again, not only are there ministries that... Here, here's another thing. And again, I like to do... I love following psychology, behaviorism. What makes people think? Even when I counsel, if I can understand somebody, I can help them. So there's this whole idea, this a worldly, a worldly idea in, in Christendom. Not all Christendom is Christian. Where if you... And, and these groups, these ministries have figured this out. Right? You can look at this in the secular or the spiritual world. If you can make people happy... If you can jazz them up every Sunday, every time they show up in church, they're likely to give more money and tell more people to come. But the Bible has a real problem with that. God has a problem with that. Churches should grow naturally. People should give because they want to give, not because they're manipulated. So there's plenty of ministries, and some of you have come from churches that you've been there for 20 years. I know a few of you that the leadership won't teach certain books because it doesn't have as much of an uplifting tone to it. As the senior pastor here, I think better of you. I do. I'm going to teach a book that's, that's heavy. I know there's a lot of disclaimer here, right? A lot of caveats. But when we get into it, you're going to see. It's good. You have to wrap your mind around it. You're going to have some questions, right, about the relationship between God and believers. But at the end of the book, we're going to see hope. We're going to see the silver lining. Albeit, it's some, a lot of bad news. But there's hope, and there's always hope in God. The other thing is that we don't make our utopia here. If we call ourselves Christians and we look at this world as, as it, well, I don't want the Lord to come back. I'm doing great. I'm making money. I'm having a good time. I'm on the top of my game. We're missing something. Because now we're making this sinful, fallen world our utopia, where we know we need to trust God for everything, including where we spend eternity and, and how that works out and how it's going to be much better than it is to hear. Don't get me wrong. I love my life. I've never laughed so much since I've become a Christian. I enjoy my life. But whenever he's ready to call me home, I'm ready to go. I'm prepared. Or whenever he's ready to, to, to interrupt human history again and, and do what he needs to do and remake the new heavens and the new earth. So what happened? Well, we, you know, you've heard of the Babylonian kingdom. Before I studied the, studied the Bible in my 20s, before I became a Christian, I remember from, you know, grade school, I went to a good public school and they taught like the Babylonians and the Persians. And then I start reading the Bible and I'm like, wow, all this stuff is coming back to me. I did, I did like history. I did pay attention. So what's happening here? What's the setting? What's the backdrop? The backdrop is God was protecting the Israelites, this little sliver, if you look at a map even today, this little sliver of land. And he was using them to positively affect the pagan world for monotheism, for the true God. But the children of Israel became more like their pagan neighbor, neighbors and reflected their decadence more than they reflected God. In addition, uh, the Assyrians were a brutal uh, empire the Assyrians are now on the run. The Assyrians align themselves with Egypt. These are facts. They're, they're mercenaries. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He's a great general. And he starts chasing the, the Assyrians northwest from the Babylonian kingdom. So Assyria is on the run. They're on the decline. He finally gets to a place in 605 BC called the Battle of Carchemish, which is in what we know as modern-day Syria. What does this have to do with anything, Pastor Joe? You're bringing me back to school. No, there's going to be, trust me, I'm getting somewhere. So Nebuchadnezzar comes and he, he chases him northwest into the tip of Syria. He finally defeats Assyria. Now he's the new sheriff in town, so to speak. So he looks out at this world. It's amazing how warfare was back in the day. And, and some of these leaders were 
they covered so much ground in a short period of time. He starts to look south and he says to Jerusalem, now he's a pagan, right? He's like, I'm the king now. I, I own everything. Start paying me some money. Everybody's got to start paying me some money. So God's got his own issues with the Israelites. Through the prophet Jeremiah, through other prophets, he's saying to the people, you know what? You've completely left me. You've left a lot of my protections. You better submit yourself to Babylon. But because they were in such a bad place and they had so much pride still, they ignored, they abused Jeremiah and some of God's prophets. And they kept resisting Nebuchadnezzar. And God's like, I'm warning you, (laughs) even in my discipline and my chastening of you, it could go a lot better if you just submit. You don't know what you're dealing with with Nebi. You know what I'm saying? So that's my nickname for him. So basically, they don't listen. And Nebuchadnezzar, after the Battle of Karshemish, oh, we're talking about another 20 years, he goes back and forth with uh, Israel, mostly the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, he's furious. They've been playing with him for over two decades. They're not listening to the prophets. He comes hot and heavy, and he comes in there. He destroys the gates. He breaks down the temple. It's just a horrible thing. War, suffering, killing, ashes, literally burning the crops and stuff with fire. So this is where we are. Now, there's a lot of good people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was one of them. A lot of good people. And they had to see this happening around them. God wasn't mad at them. It just was a, really a, a situation of the, of the culture at the time. And you know what? That could happen in the United States. Folks, how are we going to respond if, that's, if we see something like that, right? We see our culture kind of coming apart around us. What we have to learn and what they had to learn was even in tough times, God's still there. There's still hope. God still loves us. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He's sad in in the book of Jeremiah. He's sad in the book of Lamentations. It's just the time that he lived in. And folks, we're going to be sad too. And I know in some quadrants or precincts of the church, if you have an emotional issue or you're struggling with something or you have an addiction you're trying to fight, you, you just don't say it out loud. But, but... God is there, regardless of our circumstances. We may be dealing with things, folks. We may be struggling with things until the day he takes us home. We may have people that are out to get us. We may have financial problems, right? Jeremiah had his own issues, and it wasn't his fault. So I just want to encourage you, as I look around this room this morning, don't just look at Jeremiah. Look in the mirror and say, I know that God loves me. Like Jeremiah, the circumstances stink, And we can say that. And you can tell me that. It's okay. We're not going to judge you here. So I just want to encourage you with that. It's a difficult time that we're starting. I had a a missionary who, to me, I look at this guy as a giant. He's been to the Middle East. He's been to Iraq. He's been to Syria. You know, he could be beheaded. He could be captured by ISIS. And he tells me in private one day, and I'm speaking in generalities for for a reason. He goes, you know, lately I feel abandoned by God. He goes, I'm, I'm really struggling. These are my circumstances. And we, we prayed together and we, we were sad together. And he said, but you know what? I know what the Bible says. And that's the point, folks, as Christians that we have to get to. Where we're dealing with issues and we don't let our feelings twist our minds and manipulate us. Because our feelings will do that. 
You ever, you know, go through a traumatic experience and then a week later you, you get up and you're like, oh, I feel, I feel better. Like the Lord ministered to you. People were praying for you. We can't, I'd say this too, don't make major life's decisions when you're not emotionally stable because you can make a big mistake. So I just want to encourage you with a lot to throw at you, but we don't have that many verses this morning. So in verse 12, in the book of Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 12, Let's read this. Now remember, we're going from Romans all the way back to the Old Testament. We're traversing, you know, uh, uh, several centuries. This personification of Jerusalem. So as Jer- if Jerusalem was a person, that's the object lesson that we're trying to see here. Uh, we're also reading dirge poetry, which is a kind of macabre sort of, of poetry that the Bible uses to express things that are unpleasant. So we have to kind of, we got to wrap our minds around this kind of stuff here. 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Again, this is Jerusalem speaking as if it could speak. Behold and see, is there any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted on me in the day of his fierce anger? From above, he has sent fire into my bones and it overpowered them. He has spread a net from my feet. And turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. The yoke of my transgressions was bound. They were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those who I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men, right? The, The soldiers, they were overpowered by the Babylonians. In my midst, he has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah, for those things I weep, my eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob, those that those around him became his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. So one out of three parts is the resulting sorrow of choosing the world over choosing God. Now, again, I find myself defending God because I've read the entire Bible. I don't have to defend him. He's God, right? He doesn't need me to defend him. But I defend him in the sense that I know the, the, the majority. I know the, the totality of Scripture because I've read it and I've studied it. In the world... You have relationships. It could be a spouse. It could be your children. It could be your BFF. You know, it could be a whole bunch of things, right? And when the, the relationship is estranged and the trust broken, you lose the benefits of that once healthy and flourishing relationship. So be like, well, why would God do that? Well, he, in a sense, removed his protective hand from Jerusalem. Well, why would he do that? Why would a loving God? Because... He told them explicitly multiple times in the Bible, in his word, that this is the relationship that I want with us, but it's contingent upon these things. So that's why he uses a powerful metaphor of spiritual adultery, because God views marriage as very, very important, and they broke that in a spiritual sense, so they don't now enjoy the benefits. They lose his protection. So 12, is it nothing to all who pass by? Jerusalem's neighbors, and we read this in history and we read this in scriptures, mocked her and had no sympathy. Now, this is interesting because Jerusalem's pagan neighbors at one time would come over into Israel and they would want to hear about Yahweh, this 
this monotheistic God, and they would become believers. So what happened? Well, the children of Israel became part of what I would call the God culture or the culture of believers. We see that today with outward vestiges of being a believer in that relationship, but were totally hypocritical, and their neighbors gloated in their demise. Second Timothy three five speaks about a time I believe we're in living, we're living with, we're living in, that even those who call themselves believers have a form of godliness but deny its power. Second Timothy three five. If we're going to believe, if we're going to call ourselves believers, we got to believe everything that he says. We got to believe in his goodness, his character, his ability, his hope. Otherwise, who are we worshiping? We're not worshiping the God of the Bible, who's revealed himself many times. Now, why would they do this? Let me just talk about the, the psychology of it today. Even today, when, a, when you see on TV, oh, another pastor got involved with whatever. Another priest did this, right? It's almost like a, a, a glee in some precincts of the unsaved world where they they see the hypocrisy and they gloat in it. Now, let me, let me tell you why I think that is. I think that is, is because, and we all have friends that don't know Jesus, right? And maybe it's been 20 years, maybe 30 years. I have friends that long, and I talk to them about the Lord, and we, we still have a relationship. I want them to be saved. But we also have a relationship outside of the whole thing with, with God. When Folks, this is, this is a big, this is big. For all of you who are believers, your friends and the unsaved, your peers, your co-workers look at you, you're almost under a microscope because the other co-workers could screw up, throw a tantrum, turn their, their desk over and knock their computer off the thing. But if you do it and you say, well, that's not fair, the unsaved world looks at us and maybe they're not ready to take the leap into the whole God thing, but they're interested and they're watching us. And, you know, we kind of represent hope. If we're really reflecting Jesus, they like what they see, but they're not ready to make the commitment. I know it's not fair, okay? It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure on me. But when we move into hypocrisy and we, and we start living in hypocrisy, it kind of bursts their bubble. And it gives them an excuse to say, see, they're all the same. See, there is no God, right? You know it's true. And we're held as, as Christians to a higher standard. So in this situation with the believers, the surrounding nations could never make war with Israel. They could never prevail. They could never loot. They could never be effective because God almost had like a force field around them. I see that, you know, allegorically. But when they did all this stuff, and even their decadence was worse than their pagan neighbors, right? wow, you, 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 you're worse than us in what you're doing. Their, their hearts started to turn, their thinking processes, their disdain for them. Again, it's not fair, but even Jesus says that we're supposed to every day feed off of him. We're supposed to um, uh, receive from him. We're supposed to pray, not because we have to, but because he's where we get our strength from. Here, he's the one who recharges our spiritual batteries. So whether you want to look at it then or now, it's the same thing. He, Jesus wants us to reflect his light. That's his desire for us. And when someone sees us go into major hypocrisy, it's a mind twister. It's a mind bender for them. And it bothers them, even though if they're not going to tell you why it bothers them, even when we suffer. I've had situations where uh, I've been going through, it's, it's a bad time. 
you know, my wife and I, my family, um, you know, it could be a variety, financial or, you know, just any, any kind of thing. You name it. I mean, we, we go through what you go through. And I remember a person coming to my house and it, he could see that there were just things that were just troubling us. And I said, you know what? God is still good. If I start slandering God, what is that going to do to him? You know, when we struggle with the things of the Lord, we need to come together as a church. We need to counsel with others. We need to get that strength because we're still held on that pedestal even though we suffer. Job, I love Job. Job went, was going through all kinds of trials. And Job said, and there's different translations, he says, though he, meaning God, though he slay me, I will still trust in him. And Job was right to do that because it, at the very end, everything started to make sense and he was blessed. So folks, I'm the last person to get upset with you if you come in here with a frown or you don't want to talk or that you're in the right place because we're fallen beings still. And there is an element of our, our relationship with the living God because we're still sinners that's, 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 it can be fractured at times. We're, we're supposed to repent. We're supposed to be honest with the Lord. We're supposed to give it up to him. And the, you know, the more we do those things, the closer we are to him. But believers still go through difficult times. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that prosperity gospel stuff because it's not true. Because then when you go through it, you're like, well, what's going on? Maybe I'm not a believer. That's what that type of teaching does to people. That twists their mind. You got all these, these ministries where they're super wealthy, they're super insulated, nothing ever goes wrong for them. And they think that they want to teach you that, well, you could be like them. I mean, you never make the million and you never get the promotion and you never, you know, that's called reality. Verse 13, the Lord sent fire into my bones. Now, again, I believe this is really neat. When we go through the scripture, some, somebody could say, well, I think, Pastor, I would look at it this way. And we're open to those interpretations. But they're minor things, as long as we believe on the big things. You know, God, immutable, omnipresent, right? Omniscient, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As long as we're in agreement on the, the most important things, Christians can disagree on other things. So my picture of this is, this isn't Jeremiah because Jeremiah was obedient. This is the city speaking about what it had to deal with because of it turning away from God. It says he, this is interesting. He, God has spread a net and turns me back. The basic word in repent is to turn. Watch this. So here's the silver lining, whatever it takes to repent. This is interesting. Even in the discipline, you can see God's mercy. God saw the city, saw the, the ungodly doing what they were doing, but he spread a net and people say, well, why would God do that? Is he messing with me? No, he's not. Because if you're headed towards damnation and he spreads a net and catches you and pulls you back and you still with your will say, I'm still not turning to you. That's okay. Because God is doing everything he can to get us from taking the wrong path. Amen. Everybody's awake this morning. That is awesome. I love it. So this, this is serious stuff. This is heavy. The Bible says to the unbeliever, repent and be saved. Turn. And that was me in my 20s. I'm going, the cross is here. I'm going this way. I wore crucifix. I went to church once in a while. I did not know God. At some point, he worked on me, worked on me, worked on me. I repented. I turned. Wow, Jesus. 
Jesus wants a living relationship with me. It fundamentally changed my life. And it's a big decision. When I do an altar call, and I, I can say this, people come up to receive Jesus, and I'll have conversations, and they'll say to me, yeah, I know, I was sweating in that pew when you were calling for the altar call. And I was too. I still remember it, because it's a big life decision, but it's one you'll never regret. This is the living God. All his promises, eternal life, hope. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. So repenting is, is, is important. So whether it's a, an unbeliever who needs to turn to God, needs to repent, needs to change, or a believer who's backsliding and he's trying to get our attention, it's that turnaround that he's looking for so he, we can be face-to-face with him again. Verse 14. Now this is... How many times did I say, now this is interesting? I, I got to <laughs> stop repeating myself. Listen to it afterwards. You said that 50 times. Okay, I find this very interesting. Verse 14. He says, the yoke of my transgressions or my willful sin, right? This is the city speaking, was bound. They were woven together. He's weaving this yoke together, the Lord, by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. Sometimes we have the strength to go in the wrong direction. Isn't that a good thing? So it's funny, as you, in this type of church, we take every verse apart and then you, you understand it. Oh, that's not nice. God took away my strength. He made our strength fail to keep going in our self-directed ways or into the path of damnation. Jesus speaks about two paths. He doesn't want anybody going on the wide road that leads to destruction. The Lord delivered me into the hands of those who I am not able to withstand. So, you know, Saul and Samson, two figures in the Old Testament that the Bible says the Holy Spirit now is a different dispensation. When you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're sealed. But in the Old Testament, it was more of a temporary thing, right? Different dispensation, different age. And, and God eventually removed his spirit. And that's why Samson got into all that trouble. Because he had no strength. The strength was his moniker. He lost everything. He lost his strength. He lost his eyes. He lost his freedom. He lost his judgment. Because he just kept going in the wrong direction. So this is what happens. And it's, it's poetic. So God weaves this, this yoke. And it's a yoke that is not a literal yoke. This is a literal yoke. This actually was used in farming. This is pretty neat. I like to collect old stuff. And you could see it's very rudimentary. And they put the animals and, you know, there's a, a chain on the bottom and they do work together right? Back in the day when they caught a prisoner of war, there was no Geneva Convention. So sometimes they would use these barbaric. So let's talk about what the Lord's doing and let's talk about what people were doing. Samson goes the wrong way. I mean, it's, it's bad. I'm not going to go into the whole thing. You can read it on your own. And he's overcome by the Philistines and they, they, they hook him up to this device to pull, to grind grain, um, my wife and I like to walk, and we, we have been to All Air State Park. If you could put up the image of the millstones. It's funny. I'm, I'm out. I got my camera phone. I'm like, I don't even know why I'm doing things, but my life is a living sermon. So I see these, these millstones, and I'm like, Heather, Heather, I, I got to take a picture of this, right? Those millstones are about eight. Some of them are eight feet in diameter. They're a little th- uh, thicker than what you see. The picture's a little distorted, they're just collecting moss at this point because we have now, uh, we're, we've passed the industrial age, so we use different things to grind grain. 
But they would, men and beasts would set these things up because they're so heavy and because they have such a rough surface and they would put grain in there. And usually the animals, strong animals, would go around and they would, they would grind the grain, uh, the, the wheat or whatever you wanted to be ground. There's so many different things you could do and make a powder out of it. Now you go to the store, it's a powder. You got your flour, but somebody did that for you to get it in the store. It's probably some machine. Back in the day, Samson lost everything and he would have been chained. You know, these things would have been um, kind of on a pole and they, they would have been set up in, in such a way that he was chained to it like an animal. And he went around and around and around in circles, just grinding the grain for the Philistines. But this is what sin does. Whether we look at this yoke or whether we look at those millstones, sin enslaves. You know, I, I think a, a teaching or a church that yells at people and you sinners, you're a bunch of sinners. First of all, I'm a sinner too, just so you know. And we have to put sin in context. We should be preaching it so people know the dangers, just like a parent, right, teaches their children the dangers of fire or walking out into the street. We need to put it in context. Sin kills, sin enslaves. And I've seen people who have sort of been in the church and, and kind of went their way, and the end has never been good for them. So these are important lessons to learn because the city was learning it. Amen. If there's somebody here this morning, and, and I'm not, I don't know, you, you know, people, people walk in all the time in this church to visit. You know, if you're going through something or if your life is filled with dysfunction or you're involved in something and you just, you don't have a relationship with the Lord. I hope by the end of this message, <laughs> I hope by the end of this message, I knew that was going to happen. Something told me, don't lean it like that. It's ruining everything. But the mes- by the end of the message, and we don't dub things here because you know what? We make mistakes and it's all right, right? Don't ever look at us like, oh, it's them, the people up at the pulpit. Give your heart to the Lord. I, I pray that the Lord is-, is trying to reach your heart through this message because we may not be in this for a while after Lamentations. Hebrews 11.25, it gives us all the choice of enjoying the temporary pleasures of sin. So, again, as a pastor, am I going to say, oh, don't sin, you'll hate it. I'd be lying to you because it feeds our flesh, right? It feeds things in us that are tied to this world, whatever your thing is, money, power, sex, drugs, whatever it is. Is just a few things that tweak certain people, and we all have some type of predisposition. So it says, it gives us the choice to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin versus hanging out, and that's my paraphrase, with solid believers who are going through trials together. That's what the church is supposed to be. And I think there's a, a fight, there's a spiritual battle to see what does a church look like. Churches are turning into rock concert halls. They're turning into, um, you know, motivational speakers and jazzing everybody up. And there is a, a place for that. But there's also a place for this. We have to teach the balance. Verse 15, nobody could withstand the onslaught alone and without God. We can't, as today, we can't fight spiritual battles in the spiritual realm without God. We just can't do it. And Jerusalem was finding herself vulnerable because she left God and left God's protection. Remember, it was God. It was her, not God. God didn't do this. They did it. Verse 16, Jerusalem is weeping. 
We also know that Jeremiah wept. That's why he's dubbed the weeping prophet. And in 11, John 11:35, when he came to see his buddy, Lazarus, Jesus made friends while he was here. He was fully God and fully man. 11:35, it says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because his friend had died. Did it catch him by surprise? Of course not. He also wept, I believe, because he, he saw the destructive nature of sin. Now, he's the omniscient, you know, omnipresent God. Of course, he knows these things, but he also was sad when he experienced people that died. As, now, it doesn't mean Lazarus was a grievous sinner. It just meant that sin brings death, and that's why we all die, right? You ever met, meet anybody who's like two, three, four hundred years old, a thousand, only in movies, vampire movies, but it's not reality, right? Sin kills, and we're still bound to this fallen creation, Romans twelve fifteen. a lot of weeping. Weep with those who weep. We covered that. Part of the Christian walk is having compassion, empathy for others. Verses 16 through 17, he says, the comforter is far from me. And again, I always say this. God is in a, God's like the North Star. He's in, he's in a fixed position. Actually, God is right here. When two or three are gathered, I will be there in the midst of them. If you don't know Jesus and you don't have a relationship, God is a lot closer to you this morning than you realize. He's right there. And it, it just it just imagine, is, again, he's given us free will. Just imagine this wonderful, loving, amazing parent who's just, you're right there. And, and he's just so excited and he wants to, but he's given you free will. God is a lot closer than you think. When God is far from us, he didn't move, we moved. And that's always a maxim that we can count on. Those surrounding Jerusalem became her adversaries. And again, we talked about Hosea. We talked about Gomer being an unfaithful spouse, literally. Um, Jerusalem decided to play with the world. She, spiritually, she sought a lover who thought could, could bring her happiness. And this is what happens when people choose the world. And that lover turned on her. And the one who was faithful, she left behind. So let's put all this in the context. Verses 18 through 19, it says, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled, light bulb moment, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. People were expatriated. I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. Again, we're going back and forth between spiritual applications and things that were literally happening when this onslaught of the Babylonians took place in the aftermath. So two out of three is the sobering self-evaluation. Verse 18, personified Jerusalem says, the Lord is righteous and I rebelled and that's why I'm here. That's really cool. Did you ever meet somebody, or I'm sure I've done it. I've probably done all the dumb things, you know, so every dumb thing somebody could do, I probably did. And you, you go into this situation where you put yourself into dysfunction. You sin, you, 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 now you're finding relationships or, you know, you're fighting with people and, and all this kind of stuff. And you say, but I'm right. But I'm, you know, if we go through life, every time we go through a kerfuffle with somebody and go, but I'm right. We're, we're in for a rough road because we're not always right. And the mature person realizes that, the city realized that, I've realized that, that I'm not always right. 
It's this cautionary tale. The city is telling everybody who would listen, don't blame God. I did this. I did it to myself. Verse 19, I called, to, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Again, she chose an unfaithful lover, but God is a faithful spouse. Last few verses, 20 through 22. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside, the sword bereaves. At home, it is like death. They have heard that I sigh and no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day that you have announced that they may become like me. Now, there's a little revenge in here, but let me put this in context. Remember, this is the city speaking. Let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. So three out of three is the city was looking for parity, equality, and punishment. And God did eventually humble Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, we read in the book of Daniel, this king, now remember, who's going to stop him? He's pretty much got the whole Middle East under his grip. He became so prideful and so vile. And we've seen this. Stalin ended up dying early, you know. Hitler, you see these despots who their end wasn't great. And they deserved it, right? Sort of the biblical version of what goes around comes around. Not everybody gets that, but then they die and they get to see the living God. And if they don't repent, it isn't going to be good for them. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we see in Daniel, becomes so despotic, so uh, against God, that God uh, throws him to the ground and he's on all fours and his nails grow out and his hair and he's like eating grass. He's like an ox. He's like an animal. He's not, the, his, could you imagine his cabinet? What's happened to Nebi? I don't know. He's out there eating grass. He won't answer. Like he's gone mad. And for seven years, then the God restores him and he realizes what he had done. And he, we believe, Bible teachers, that he becomes saved. He completely repents and turns around. That's pretty fascinating. So we can look at, uh, was it, uh, I don't have all the names in my head. Was it Pol, Pol Pot, um, uh, Khmer Rouge? Yes. Um, I'm trying to think if he was the one where the, some of these guys, very, very few, had actually repented and stopped what they were doing, like Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen this in real life. just want to make sure I have the, the right despot. I got a few of them in my head. Uh, so, so this is what happens. The important thing is that we come to the place of clarity. Some people never do. And you, you know people like that. They, they go into dysfunction. They go into problems. You, they try to get you to pray with them, and they, they start listening. Then when they feel better, they go back into that lifestyle. And then when they're beat up by the world again, they come back. That's dangerous to, to play with the spiritual realm like that. Matthew 12, 43 through 40, 45 speaks about that. Um, but we have to make sure we get to this place where we turn to God. And that's God's desire, the Bible says, for everybody on the planet. I look at this as a parable of, of a house. And, and folks, you know, I used to build houses. I used to do a lot of things. I'm the jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, so I used to build houses and, you know, building the foundation the, with the concrete and the block, and you got to wait for it to cure before you put the next level on. And before you know it, the roof is on and, and you know, the siding, the insulation, 
uh, plumbing, electric electricity, depending on the size of your crew, it could take several months to build one house. If that house gets knocked down by a wrecking ball, it probably takes about 20 minutes, depending on the size of the house. You just spent three months building it, and that wrecking... So I look at this in life. You know, you can build a reputation. You could build a good name. You could build... Um, something in yourself where people put trust in you, but in one, and it's not fair, in one event, it all gets knocked down. And even if you rebuild again, think about this, now you have all the, all the debris to deal with before you actually start the building process again. Life is like that. God wants to keep, that, keep us from that. That's his desire. Now, in light of Jesus' teachings in the New Testament, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. We know that David in the Psalms said about his enemies, break their teeth. We don't pray that today. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. So when we're in the Old Testament, I got to tell you the way things ran before Christ came. However, it might feel good to curse your enemy. It might feel good to pray that something horrible happens to them, right? But in light of Jesus' teachings, we're not supposed to, that's not how we roll. It's a different age. Since Jesus, we're supposed to have grace. We're supposed to forgive because we've been forgiven. But let's go back to uh, Babylon. God did say, for those that don't show mercy, mercy won't be shown to them. And Babylon eventually went the way of all flesh, and the Medo-Persians were the next new king in town. So, leaving it at this, these are good lessons in life. When we're in a position of authority, we have to be careful how we use it. You, some of you here um, could be professors, you could be uh, a manager, you could be a parent, you could be uh, in the court systems, you know what I'm saying? How do we treat other people? When we have power in the world over somebody else, how do we use that power, right? And when we have authority, very, very important life lessons to learn. Even the simple thing of being a believer and an unbeliever comes and you're leading them to Christ and now they want you to mentor them. They want to be accountable to you. How do we treat them when they do something wrong? Are we harsh or are we reflecting Jesus? A lot of really neat life lessons here. So at the end, we find out that Jerusalem walked away. You know, um, the Bible says even to to Christians reading it, First John says that if we love the world and the world system, the love of the Father isn't in us. Our loyalties have to be to God first. You know, what, what gets us excited in life? I just love, you know, I do a lot of things. I, I like to raise my bees. I can't wait until late March when they start coming out again. And I, I'm allergic to bee stings. I got to like duct tape the bottom. You'd be like, you, what, then why do you do that? What are you, nuts? It's really cool. I have to tape the bottom of my whatever. I can't let them. Sometimes they get in and they go up my leg. And I got to run in the house and take everything off. Because Why did I say that? <laughs> because if they sting me, I'm going to be in a world of hurting. But I love my bees. But I love teaching God's word. I love being with believers. I love coming to church. You're okay with my flubs. I love that. Um, but the bottom line is, I mean, what jazzes us up in life? Is it... For some, and it's men and women, are you, were you more looking forward to being ministered to by the word this morning or watching the Super Bowl tonight? You know, where is our love? Where is our, our priorities? Is it God first? And that's something that we have to learn. So this is true for everyone in the world. 
Everyone on the planet chooses one or two spiritual companions, either the world, which is unfaithful, which is capricious, which is disloyal, and the world, Jesus says, is passing away. Or everyone in the world, and there's a mixture, can choose God as the faithful spouse, and the things of God last forever. To understand God's love, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? So at this time, two guys are going to come out and talk to you about, just for a few minutes, about two Christians, not pastors. They're going to talk to you about the love of God and the hope that we can have in God. So let's see what happens with this. Hey, Ben. Hey. Oh. How's it going? Good, bro. How are you doing today? Good. Did you uh, prepare for the Bible study? Did you answer all the questions? I was with all my buddies, and uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we did a good job, but uh, I don't know. What's, what's the problem? Well, all the answers are there, except the answer to the last question. It's not a Bible. Wait a minute, Romans 8, 38 through 39? It's not in there. Who can separate us from the love of God? Yeah, it's not there. Yes, it is. Um, we checked, we couldn't find it. Listen, I wouldn't give you questions if there were no answers in there. Well, then you're going to have to show me, Bible boy. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Ever. Are your ears open? Why? ready for this i'm ready okay let me just get my glasses here this is going to be good maybe that's why you didn't see that verse 38 it says well let's go back one because this is really encouraging 37 says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See? See, it doesn't say. Yes, it does. It says nothing. Exactly. You prove me right. No. Nothing is something. No. Nothing is nothing. No, nothing is something. No, nothing. No, something is something. Nothing can't be something. Yes, it can be, and it's right here. So you want me to go in there and say nothing? Yes. Just be like, nothing. Exactly. And the specific nothing is neither and nor. Fantastic. Neither nor. Nothing, neither nor. So I'm just going to go in there and say, I'm not going to say anything. No, I want you to say something. Then what is that something? Nothing. 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 Nothing? Nothing. Yeah, but you don't know what my nothing is. It doesn't matter. No, your nothing is nothing, but my nothing 
It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what you did five years ago. The Bible tells us that God loves us so much that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing? Nothing. You know how hard it was to practice that? Nothing, something, something, nothing. We were going nuts downstairs before we started sermon. So at this point, before we partake of communion, I just want to give everyone an opportunity that if you don't know Jesus, you know, uh, he's, he's faithful, he's good, he's loving. He, even in our darkest of time, he still tries to catch us and bring us back. He loves us. He'll never forsake us. You can't say that for anyone or anything in this world. So while the worship team is up here, if there's anybody here, admittedly, there's no shame in this. Up to this point, you really don't know Jesus. When I was in my 20s, I was sitting like you were in the church that we went to, and I was listening to the pastor in the altar call, and I thought, he's right. I am in a denomination. I've been wearing this gold crucifix since I was a little boy, but it was almost like a charm to me. It wasn't, I was looking for external things, religious things to get me to heaven, but I didn't know the person who owned heaven, who ran heaven, the person who loved me and wanted much more than me wearing articles of jewelry. So while the worship team plays, I just want to ask if there's anybody here, if you don't know Jesus, I would just ask you to walk up to the front here. Let us lead you in a prayer. And as you say the words, it's a short prayer. Uh, God knows your heart. Just you getting up and coming to the front. He's, he's trying to prompt you, but you've got to respond to his prompts. You come forward if that's your desire to receive Jesus. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.